Hello and welcome to the February edition of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and later on I'll be joined by my colleagues from Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. How is it February already? This year's moving so fast and this month we're reminding you not to get ahead of yourselves for the growing year. It's okay to stop and wait to sow those seeds and carry on instead with those vital tidy up jobs. Later on, we'll be opening up the post bag and answering your questions on how to prevent rats in the garden and how to plan your garden on a budget. Our special guest this month is Simon Rose, Garden Organic member and Head of Experience Development at the WWT. Simon is a wealth of knowledge. I visit Slimbridge to talk to him about the importance of wetlands across the UK and how we can play our part to build mini wetlands in our own gardens. But for now, I'm going to join Chris in our virtual potting shed. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. Not spoken for a while, have we? No, we haven't. No, we've no. been. We're in the dark months, aren't we? So yes. we've been off doing other things. We yeah. have indeed. I mean, we last had a good old natter in December. So what have you been up to since then? Well, I'll have to say I had a nice break. I must admit, over the Christmas period, a little yes. bit of travelling. Um, good. But I'm back at it now. You'll be glad to hear. I think this time of year we're kind of really we're chomping at the bit, aren't we? Oh, you get, yeah. to, you get February and the snow drops around. It's a little teaser, isn't yes. it? You know? Oh, are they wonderful. Yeah, as well. they just really lift yes. you and, yeah. and under the grey skies particularly. And also I was at Q the other day and all the magnolia, the furry magnolia buds yes. are all swelling up and yeah. that. So you get all this anticipation. But in on this lot, there's not a great deal I can do. I'm doing the practical stuff. I'm cleaning my propagators, getting them ready for seed sowing and my big plans for that. I've cleaned the shed. Can't beat cleaning a shed. No. Oiled all my tools. You can oh, eat your dinner very off my, good. Honestly, very together. You can eat your dinner off my spade now. So yeah, no problem. And uh, and then repaired the polytunnel because that got a bit of wind damage. Obviously, we've had a very windy sort of time. So actually, let's just explore that for a minute. If the polytunnel tears, is that what happens? No, because I have a netted polytunnel. Right, okay. so, it, so it lets the wind move wind through, goes it, through yeah. it. Um, but what tends to happen is it, the joints come apart. So the wind rattles it, and then there's some bits of it drop out, basically. Right. And then I have to get new screws and nuts and put it all okay, back together. Okay, so it's again. the metal, not the not Yes, the yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. The netting lets it go through. Yeah. But it's quite a big repair job. I quite enjoy doing it, to be honest with you. I've been in the shed organising my seeds. Obviously, I get them into the appropriate piles for the for the, for the spring ahead. Oh, go on, tell us. What, what are your piles? We've got <laughs> my to know. Piles in there. Well, I've got my... I tend to seed the food, the edibles, in three waves, really. Um, so I'll have my early seed sown, which is the sort of exotic, the chilies, the peppers, the aubergines. And they'll all be started in propagators. And then I'll go on to sort of brassicas in April. I'll, I'll get all those sown. And then the sort of tenders, your runner beans, your courgettes, your sweet corn, your pumpkins, they'll all go in in early May. Sort of. So I get waves. And I'm very careful about it because a lot of them will be in the flat. When I sow them, I don't go too early because the light levels are too low. They get very stretched and they don't turn out to be good plants. I want the longer day for them to be more strong seedlings. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's quite a lot of pressure around, frankly. You know, I mean, you know, you, you kind of click around on social media and you see everybody kind of rolling up the sleeves and getting on with it and you think you're too late. I mean, it, it's nonsense, yeah, it's, isn't it? Sometimes you just got to avoid social media, <laughs> yes, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. I understand why people are chomping at the bit, but I will say this I'm going to have a little shout out for winter because. This is the most perfect time of year to look at trees and deciduous trees, yes. our native deciduous trees. They, they just look so beautiful when they're in the all together, I call it, when they're sleeping and they're yes. all together. Yes. You just get these incredible <laughs> oak tree this time of year was silhouetted against the sky. Absolutely stunning, stunning plant. So go out, go to your park. I was at Q the other day. Some mighty trees there. They've got these Zelkovas there that are just incredibly multi stemmed. 
So go out and have a look at trees. I really encourage that. And it kind of reminds you the winter's a beautiful season as well. And I know we all get a bit down in February because we've spent too much money over Christmas and the sky's grey and we want the longer days to come. But stop and, uh, and smell, the, uh, smell the coffee as well, I think. I know, and there's, there's kind of shades of it as well. You know, you look around and you see different colours. If you really allow yourself to kind of adjust your eyes to the sort of sepia effect around mm. you, and, and you can kind of see those reds of the cornice coming through. Or I was looking at a yellow of the willow mm. um, today uh, out in the garden here at Wrighton. You know, and you think, oh, actually, there is, there's quite a bit of colour around. There's You've lot, just got to yeah. look for it. It's not necessarily comes in the form of a flower, you see. it comes. Yes. I'll tell you what, brilliant one this time is looking at lichen that's on the, on the yes. branches. That's so beautiful. Yeah. There's really is an endless amount of stuff to see. So I know your head goes down a bit in February because you're kind of waiting to do get your, you know, You've got to check your patience. and uh, But going out and enjoy winter, it is a beautiful, beautiful season in its own right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I like the sound of getting ahead with all the jobs, though. I mean, you have at least, you know, you've got <laughs> yeah. things washed down, you've got things, you know, sorted out. I've got out. a spade you can eat your dinner off. I know. How about that? No, that's really inspiring. And actually... It doesn't take long once you get stuck in. That's it. And you'll be glad you've done it. That's the thing. Because it's very satisfying, isn't it? You yeah. kind of like, you know, you kind of get the cobwebs out and you're like, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm like a coiled spring. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the mind boggles. <laughs> what are you thinking about in terms of um, what you're going to sow this year? I mean, you've got, you know, you're. All, I know you love your hardy annuals, your half hardies and all that stuff. Have you got those in, 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 in your piles or are your piles just your food piles at the moment? No, I've got my half my half hardy annuals are in the flat because they'll all go into propagators because they need that warm start. All my hardy annuals are waiting to go. I'll get them in shortly because they like a little cold period before they germinate and get more or even germination. So those piles are sorted as well. I've obviously got my heritage seed library seeds. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which... yes. We'll come on to that in just a moment, but I am going to ask you to explain again. I know you've done this for me before. The difference between a hardy annual and a half hardy annual. Certainly. Well, a hardy annual will take the cold, basically. You can sow them direct into the soil. So I sow them in drills, um, sort of small channels. When do you well, do I will those? do that March, uh, March late February, okay. early March. Some people do them in the autumn, overwinter them. Yes. But the, the point is, is you can sow them outdoors. They take the elements. They enjoy the cold weather. The, on the other side, a half hour annual, lobelias, petunias, all our sort of bedding plants, um, morning glories. I grow quite a lot of these sort of plants. They don't like the cold at all. They don't. A bit like a runner bean or a courgette. They don't like the cold at all. So I'll start them in propagators. I'll nurse them. I'll get them into small plants. And then I'll wait till I know there's no more danger of frost and then they'll be planted out into the garden. So really, the, the half-hardies are a, a bit of a prima donna and, yes. the, uh, and the hardy annuals are they, a bit of a bouncer. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah crack on, bring it on, bring it on, absolutely. Exactly, that's yeah. a good way to look at it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then, of course, we are sitting in the room here where the uh, Heritage Seed Library seeds are dispatched. There's a whole load of pigeonholes down the end. People have been writing in. Um, and and we've been sending them their seed orders. We sent out three and a half thousand orders. Brilliant. Isn't Brilliant. that incredible? It's just so good. Yeah, it really is. Absolutely amazing. So I'm going to have to ask you, Chris, what did you order from the Heritage Sea Library? Well, as um, to be honest with you, as much as possible. Yes. Because <laughs> I really love it. I don't. I've I've got a few favourites here. So I always love the the Heritage tomatoes. Fox cherry is one of my favourite ones. They'll be going in shortly. Um, and so, yes, I've already, I'm going to try a little bit things a little bit different this year. I've never grown a melon before on my on my allotment, and I wonder whether the London climate might allow me to do it. You never quite know what sort of season. You must have up. grown a melon before at some yeah, stage. Yeah, I have, but not, not outside. In. Not outside. I've got one here from the HSL called Green Nutmeg, so I'll be trying that. I will kick that off sort of late April, early May, like with all the other tenders. Um, organic spinach will be going in soon. 
Um, Blight Resistant Virginia, so that'll be going in quite shortly too. And I always go John's Long Pod, the runner bean. I always uh, get tons okay. and tons of it off, off that plant. I really do. So I'll have five or six of them on a few wigwams and I will reap the benefits. There. Okay, okay. Well, I must have to tell you that I'm also growing a melon. I think I've probably got the same variety as you. So we'll have to compare notes on that. Yes. Um, because I was thinking of doing it in, um, I've got a little uh, cold frame. It's not very big, but I, I thought I would try my melon in there. So um, we'll have to compare notes on that, see how we get on. But the one I've got to tell you about is the tomato. Are you ready for this? Go on. Mrs. Taylor's red pear. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. I know. Name association. Know. <laughs> exactly. I could not uh, get one of those. So, yeah, so I'm dead excited about about all my uh, all my seeds also. And, and of course, that's the thing, you know, we always say with Heritage Seed Library seeds is because they're so fresh and they're open pollinated, they're always raring to go. They germinate as quick yeah. as anything, don't they? Yeah, they're brilliant. And it's frugal, you know, if you, yes. it saves the pennies as well. And I just think, though, and this is why I love it, if you ask me the ultimate reason, I just think they taste, the taste of the edibles are yes. better than anything you'll get anywhere else. Any F, better than any F1, any supermarket, I just think the taste stands right out and that's why I grow them. Okay, well, maybe at the end of this year we could do a bit of a swap between us. Yes, yeah. sounds a good idea. Encourage me to we save. We make them a massive properly. salad as well if you want. Yeah, with, with Taylor's Taylor's tomatoes. <laughs> well, talking of uh, talking of salads, actually, not quite talking of salads, but you know, bear with me. I was a bit late with my bulb trifle this year. Right. Okay. Yeah, I did one in about the end of the first week of January, so it hit the cold spell. Mm. So I'm really hopeful. It's it's tulips on the bottom, then narcissi, yeah. then crocuses. It's, I'll it's put them a in a nice, one. nice sheltered area. I would, with yes. a bit, if you can, with some sunshine. And I think in a pot they'll probably crack. That'd be on. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Give it nothing to lose, is there? So. And the other thing I was very late with, I haven't yet got them in actually, is I've got a lot of allium bulbs. Am mm. I too late? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I would autumn plant them. You do get summer ones as well, though, don't you? But yeah. I would, I would autumn plant them normally. I would, it's up to you. you. I mean, if you store them right, you can do it this autumn, so you, they're not lost. Oh, well, that's a good idea. So, how should I store? I, them? I would probably store them in a, in a dry sand in a seed box or somewhere where it's the temperatures sort of quite low, um, and they, they they'll get through to the autumn, probably no problem. Right, I will do that in the dark as that. well, so they don't start sprouting. Yeah, no, I will yeah. figure out some way at the back of the garage to do that. That's our coldest place. Brilliant. Talking of cold places, my goodness, we've had some weird weather. Yes, we? we have indeed. We didn't have much snow so far, anyway, in, in the right neck of the woods. But my goodness, we've had some nasty storms. We had an awful lot of wet, you know, huge amounts of rain. Um, we flooded across the veg patch here. Uh, let's let's sort of stop and, and kind of think about this for a minute, because this is over the period of just a few weeks we had an extraordinary range of of different weather conditions. This is the new normal, no doubt about it. How have you prepared for that yourself? Well, it's very tricky, isn't it? Because there's no predicting it. When I started, I mean, my 40th year as a gardener, and and when I started, the weather patterns were much more even, or it felt felt that way. I was was abroad before Christmas. I was in Cambodia. I was in the sun. I came back, and it just, like, typhoons for 10 days, you know? Really heavy winds, a lot of rain, um, everything getting really boggy, and then it all froze, so I couldn't even get a pick in the ground in a little while. The turnaround's very quick. Yes. Things are changing very quickly. And there is a bit of an argument, again, not for going too early with your sowing and stuff like that, you know. I think that quite a bit to be patient, you know, to to to, to let the winter blow itself out a bit before, yeah. I, before I start. And um, obviously, in terms of things like flooding, you, you know, making sure your soil's healthy, make sure, you you know, you've, maybe you can put soak aways in if it's really bad, or a rain garden, which is soak stuff away. 
that's possible. Uh, the balcony is very, very windy, so this makes causes me all sorts of issues. So I try and filter that wind. So I plant a um, jasminian, um, nudiflorum, jasmine officiali, summer and um, winter jasmines, and I put them on the windward side of the balcony, and I get that to filter the wind out a bit, like a hedge would. The hedge reduces right. the wind, yeah. stops the eddying, basically, the swirling over the top. And that tends to help a little bit as well. And I'll also look at plant physiology. So I plant, say, a plant like Grizzlina litteralis, which is a very waxy leaf. Okay. It's, you get it growing near the seafront. It's just built to take wind. So if you're in a garden centre or you're buying plants anywhere, wholesale, whatever, and you've got a windy situation, look at the physiology of the plant. Look at the waxiness, the cuticle, the waxiness of the leaf. Any fine, thin leaves are going to fry up a lot quicker than a waxy leaf. Because it holds the moisture within. We've just got, it's got more protection. The cuticle, which is the outside of the leaf, is much thicker and is more built for resistance because it comes naturally from a much more windier environment. Okay. All right. That is fascinating. I love the idea of the two jasmines, actually, a summer and a winter. Yeah, it looks great. White in the summer, yellow in the winter. Yeah, yeah. gorgeous. And, they, and, they, and they, I mean, you can weave them in, in, in all into the railings, so they become this almost hedge-like. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's quite good as well in the summer when I put the baby plants out. When I'm hardening them off, I can put them underneath and it protects them from scorching as well. So. And that jasmine will obviously be in a pot because it's on a balcony. Yes, yeah. So how do you um, top dress that? Do you, How do yeah. you make sure that the soil is renewed or what, what do you do? It's yeah. a perennial, so I can't, you know, I can't. It's not like the other stuff which is seasonal and yes, I'm moving quite, around. Yeah. So I will top dress. You tend to find over time the soil levels will sink in a pot. So I have got room for top dressing and I yeah. use a good compost for that. My own compost I like to use. And I'll sprinkle that with a few... Comfrey pellets, a block in 14 pellets as well. Yeah. And obviously I rely on liquid feeds. So they are root bound, so they only get to a certain size that it is really about me subsidising the nutrient, basically. And then you have no choice in that. The purists, purists in the organic will say, well, it's in a container it's not, you know, it's not natural, but I have no choice. I garden at height. Absolutely. So I have to subsidise with organic fertiliser methods. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I can completely understand that. Did you have to do any preparation down on the allotment? I'm mean, thinking about the storms, really. Yeah, yeah. I, the only thing I had problems with was, like I said, my polytunnel, really. But not really. It's a, it's a very flat allotment site, and the wind hurtles across it. But the bit I'm in is sort of an end bit. It's quite sheltered, so I didn't really have a problem. I mean, you're always worried stuff. Trees might go down. There's quite a lot of trees down, but we escaped that. Thank you. Thank yeah, God, good, good, good stuff. Well, I mean, going back to the flooding, we here at Wrighton had, I would say, two or three inches on the, on the hard-standing paths, and then... Um, and then at the same right across the veg bed, the flooding got into the greenhouse. It was it was extraordinary, really, because we weren't really expecting it because it, it's not something that, you know, is, mm. is terribly common here. We think what happened was it was just the sheer volume of the amount of rain that fell. The fact is we are in a little bit of a bowl here. We've got some some farmland around us that's, that's on a slightly higher level. Um, and so the runoff was just coming down so quickly and the rain was just continuing. The ditches on the edge, um, along the edge, which should usually, you know, take some of the pressure off. Um, actually, they were full, you know, so so we got to a point where we couldn't cope. And, and I think that's uh, something that's quite common. And when I say we couldn't cope, I don't mean we couldn't cope sort of personally, because obviously we just dealt with it. But what I mean is that the the the, the land couldn't cope. Mm, saturation, it's saturation, yeah. uh, beyond saturation, it felt like. And it was extraordinary, really. It's quite alarming when you see that site and what it what it looks like and what it what it what it feels like, what it sounds like. It's all quite alarming. And then two days later, it's all gone. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, that means your soil's good because if it yes. was sitting there, you see, yeah. if it, you've worked your soil, Emma and a team have worked the soil properly because... 
Otherwise, if it's like, you know, if you get clay bands or whatever, that hasn't, or anything like that, it will just sit. And that's when the damage is really done. You get a thing called physiological drought with evergreens like rhododendrons, where if you get flooding and the, what happens is the plant trying to breathe, the roots need oxygen, they're trying to breathe, and they, they end up suffocating. And you don't notice that till the spring when the plant tries to come back into life and photosynthesize, and the roots are damaged, and the whole thing just flags. Because so it, basically it's drowned because plant roots need oxygen. So the quicker that soil, that water, sorry, can drain, the less damage to your to plant life, particularly your perennial plant life. And if you've been managing your plot as a good organic yeah, gardener... Yeah, as a good composter, good soil is the key. Is yeah. That's how you... If you want to combat that sort of, you know, have the less damage to your garden by the climatic problems we're having, good soil is, is the key. I think we'll finish there, Chris. Blimey, that's... Talk about, you know, spot-on advice. Look after your soil and the garden will look after you. Sounds good. Well, as you can hear, probably, I'm somewhere a bit unusual. I'm here at Slimbridge, which is the original site of the WWT. They have lots of sites all around the UK now. I'm here where it all started uh, in 1946. Sir Peter Scott started his collection of wild birds and it's grown into this marvellous organisation that many of us will have heard of. But I'm here really to talk about how important wetlands are. To do that, I'm going to have a discussion with Simon Rose. Simon, tell us what it is you do. Well, my title is Head of Experience Development. I'm really looking after all the new projects and new ideas we have to give people a rich and enjoyable experience when they visit our 10 wetland centres around the British Isles. So how do you define a wetland? I think there's some complicated scientific definitions, but I like to think of it very simply as where land meets water. Edges of habitats are often the richest part. Gosh, OK. So I'm thinking of that in all sorts of contexts, because you think of a riverbank, you might think of a coastline, you might just think of a ditch that's full of water. This is one of my favourite spots, I have to say. I'm, I'm a, a regular visitor. And we're here on the most clear of days that we could possibly have hoped for. So we can see, you know, a lot of trees, a lot of willows. What's interesting about this environment is that you've tried to create a habitat that works for wildfowl primarily and, and humans second. I mean, in an ideal world, would you prefer that the humans weren't here? Well, we, we've got places like that as well. So the bit of Slimbridge that we're at at the moment, and bear in mind there's 900 acres of it in total, is primarily to allow visitors to actually get out and interact with nature. And so this is the bit we call the grounds. This is where most of the family visitors come and walk around. They probably feed the birds. There's play areas. There's all the things you'd expect in a visitor centre enter a cafe and toilets and everything but there's parts of the reserve they're triple si's they're out on the estuary which actually you can't walk through but you can look at from bird hides yes that's where we have these massive collections of wild birds that are attracted here they come here every year they're migrating from northern latitudes uh, and they're literally thousands it's been described as an avian serengeti which i think is a really you know powerful phrase 
And it's why Peter Scott came here after the war and settled and decided to create his very first wetland centre and open it to the public. Now, you used the term SSSI there. Explain that. So that's a site of special scientific interest. They could be geological, they could be any form of wildlife, but many of our centres, I think nine out of ten, are designated as triple SIs because of their rich biodiversity. We're just walking past another little garden here. Do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, this is our memorial garden. We created this about seven or eight years ago. There's a lovely oak gazebo in the middle. There's a gentleman sitting there looking at these sculptural trees which have all got leaves and people will actually dedicate a leaf on those trees Mm. to someone they want to remember. So It's a sort of contemplative area and it's planted up with a mix of really nice perennials. It's one of my favourite gardens actually. It looks absolutely gorgeous in the summer obviously when all the perennials are out but In the winter now, you know, it's still got structure with the box heading and everything just looks so good, I think, at this time of year. You've got the space, haven't you? You can also see the structure. You can see what a plant really is, you know, what the bones of a plant is. Now, what's what's flying over? Yeah, there's some of our grey lag geese. We've got a great many and they're just going out to graze on some of the areas there, which we're going to see in a minute as we walk out towards the estuary tower. And that's uh, one of the areas that many birdwatchers come here and they head straight out there because they can look out right over the river and they can see areas which are, as I say, this intertidal zone on the other side of the the flood embankment, which actually protects from flooding. So we're now going through a tunnel, which probably sounds quite echoey. And we're going out onto the reserve, and so we've passed through the perimeter fence, uh, which is to keep our collection birds safe, and so a lot of wildlife knows that if it flies into Slimbridge, it's actually safe from predators, so it's quite a popular place for birds to bring up their young. I don't know whether they consciously know that, but it does seem to happen. How important is water in the first instance in terms of supporting wildlife? absolutely vital. I mean, water is life, isn't it? In reality, I think it's something like 40% of the world's wildlife depend on water. We know that whenever you introduce water into the garden, say, immediately it's one of the best biodiversity boosters you can put there. I mean, I'm a landscape architect and I've planted a lot of trees, a lot of plants in my long and varied career. But whenever you create a pond, shall we say, or you introduce water, the results are so quick. And so creating wetlands is one of the most satisfying things because in the first year you can see life is attracted to it. So just in a single season, as we sometimes say, we say that with gardening too, you can transform a piece of soil so quickly if if you look after it properly. Okay, so how do you manage from a horticultural perspective in somewhere like this? (laughs) Yeah, it, it can be a challenge. We have extensive grounds. I mean, it's not an intensively managed garden. But as you've seen, Fiona, today, we have little gems which we manage more intensively, often with the use of keen volunteers who come in and help us keep on top of it. We've got an ex-Chelsea garden, which we've been sitting in earlier. and We've got our memorial garden and we're creating a brand new water garden at the moment. And so these are little beacons. And to be honest, we probably try and keep some of the birds out because we have enormous bird pressure here. And as we all know in the garden, if you have too much of anything, it can be a problem. Really, we want a nice 
balanced ecosystem, don't we? Indeed. So the visitor centre end of things has to be uh, much more carefully managed from almost you're more looking after the plants there than the animals. And then once you get out into the more wilder spaces that are part of your huge site, then nature takes its course much more. Yeah, we're working with nature, I think. It's true to say. I mean, very few places in the British Isles certainly are absolutely natural. There's usually some form of intervention or management and obviously Slimbridge is no different. Okay, so in the visitor centre area we have indeed walked around some lovely little garden spaces and I know you're very, very keen to promote what people can do in their own gardens with water. What's the first and most easy thing perhaps that somebody could start with? Somebody could just go out tomorrow and organise themselves. A simple action that somebody could take? Absolutely. I mean, probably the first thing that springs to mind is find a container. If you haven't got any water in your garden, find a container that will hold water. And that could be anything from a bucket to half a barrel. That's a classic one, isn't it? Or it could just be an old Belfast sink or something like that. If you Sometimes you have these things lying around, don't you, at home? I bet if you looked around, you could find something that holds water, a trug or a plastic box that you put under your bed. Dig a hole, bury it in the garden, fill it with water, put some rocks put some plants and I guarantee that within weeks certainly within a couple of months you will find life there because nature abhors a vacuum that's the Mm. classic phrase isn't it and things will move in all the better if you can sort of actually give it a shallow side so that newts and frogs and things like that can get in and get out again and then you'll find things will lay their eggs in there if you've got some plants in there with lots of little crevices and a few stones you'll be absolutely amazed. The first summer, you will have life. And it's actually, we've done a lot of talking about water, but we haven't talked about mud. (laughs) I mean, actually, that's the key to it all here, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's perhaps not very sexy, but, you know, the reason Slimbridge is here is because the River Severn, which is just over there and we're going to see in a minute, is about half a mile wide at this point. Let's walk over on this boardwalk, shall we? And... When the tide goes out, and it's got a huge tidal range, you may be aware, it's the second highest in the world, I think, Um, it leaves this large expanse of mud, which is incredibly attractive if you're a goose. (laughs) (laughs) And also all the wading birds, they need, that's where they feed. They have all those long, different shaped beaks to actually probe the mud and find their food, which is largely invertebrates, different depths. That's why they've got different length beaks. And so this is one of the richest habitats. Um, You know, I've said wetlands are biodiversity hotspots, but mud and intertidal areas are some of the best in the country. You see, it's really interesting because we gardeners, we don't really welcome mud very much. We try and hide the mud a bit. We try and plant round it, plant over it. But actually, it's perhaps quite important to leave a bit of mud. Well, a bit of bare soil. I mean, you know, in the garden, we've said nature abhors a vacuum. Anything bare soon gets vegetated, doesn't it? But it is also a really dynamic environment, isn't it? Mm. And so if you regularly disturb an area, you get a very different outcome you get very different species come in there so you get annual weeds as opposed to perennial weeds in the garden they're generally called weeds here they might be called wildflowers <laughs> yes yes but it's all perception yes. um uh, and certainly again going back to your definition of where land meets water i think there is scope for a bit of mud but as you say you know the grass will quickly come and and cover the mud 
We've come back inside after our bracing walk outside and we've thawed out a little bit. And we wanted to get on to talking about the kind of bigger picture and, and, and how much wetland there is in the UK, across Europe. How important is it? Is it in decline? What, what, what is going on with wetlands? Right. Well, I can't answer with a figure, but what I can say is that wetlands have uh, been subjected to a remarkable amount of decline in the last 300 years. Apparently, and this is something that scientists have verified, half the wetlands in Europe have been lost. But even more shocking is that in the UK, it's 75%. 75% of wetlands have been lost in the last 300 years, presumably because of urbanisation. Agriculture and urbanisation. And in fact, I I did look this up to verify it, uh, and I saw a very interesting paper uh, in uh, Nature um, that showed a global map of where wetlands have been lost, and a lot in China, Europe and North America, the areas that have become industrialised, And there's obviously urban spread, but there's also drainage um, for agriculture. And, you know, when I say the last 300 years, the majority of the early uh, loss of wetlands was actually for crops. So how would that work then? You know, because to 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 clear a land of water is is not a straightforward exercise so so how would that have have taken place so if you know um the fens in britain that is an area which was very low lying still is very low lying and uh, if you went back to the 17th uh, century you would have seen extensive marshes going on for as far as the eye could see uh, with all the wildlife that that uh, as i say is associated with them that is now very fertile um, ground which has been drained for agriculture and if you drive across there you can see either sides of the road that the land is actually lower than the road where it has shrunk uh, and a lot of it is peatland and it's actually lower because of the drainage pipes that have been laid and the windmills originally, but now electric pumps or diesel pumps, which are constantly taking the water off the land so that it can be used for agriculture. OK, so where do we start to make a difference, particularly in the realm of, of, of wetlands? Right. So here at WWT, we're on a mission. We're saying that wetlands are the way, that they're a very multi-purpose way to actually redress the balance. We've we've already discussed the fact that they are, you know, really rich in wildlife, but they also have other benefits. They actually help prevent flooding, which we know is a really serious issue in the British Isles. Uh, in our urban areas with sea level uh, rise and with climate change we're getting wetter winters and wetlands this area where water and land mix like floodplains of rivers are actually essential to prevent flooding we need to actually soak up the water the land used to act as a sponge but as soon as you uh, tarmac over or you know hard surface an area and create an urban area the water that lands on the ground runs off very quickly into the drains and thence into the rivers and you get this flooding. We've got to slow that process down. We've got to have these areas of green roofs. We've got to have areas of rain gardens. We've got to have areas of floodplain again that actually allow the water to be soaked up and then gradually released over time or even better, transpired back from the plants and never actually go into the drains. WWT are saying that wetlands are the way, they are a solution to many of the world's problems at the moment. 
Let's just talk a little bit about the potential for wetlands to lock up carbon through carbon sequestration. How does that work? Okay, so um, down at Sturt Marshes near Bridgewater, um, we've been uh, creating a new reserve. We started in 2006 with the Environment Agency and we've been recording how uh, the land has actually trapped silt as it's been allowed to flood and we've been actually shocked how quickly it has actually been locking up carbon and we've got uh, scientists here who are monitoring this and we've realised that actually it's far more effective at locking up CO2 than, than even you know tree planting and woodlands which we all know is something that's being advocated. Wetlands are actually faster than rainforest at locking up carbon Gosh, that's a positive message, isn't it? I mean, as I understand it, you know, you've talked about silts, but even in, in, in your own garden, the sediment that settles on the bottom of the pond is, is another opportunity for carbon sequestration, even in a back garden setting. So, you know, we don't want to be scraping our ponds and, and cleaning them up too much, do we? No, actually, you know, it's a natural process. Uh, when you dig a pond, it very quickly starts to build up silt. Uh, <laughs> It's an ongoing process that's going on all the time that wetlands are actually silting up and we need to create new wetlands and allow them to do that. And that builds up, um, you know, as you know, peat is one of the things that everyone's advocating now. It actually locks carbon into the ground and uh, it's it's one of the best ways to to reverse this process of, of uh, CO2 in the uh, in the atmosphere. And it's quick as well. You know, it's quick, as, as we've said before. So that is a very, very hopeful message. And of course, we know it's brilliant for wildlife. All the wonderful wildfowl I've seen today, which are what, what the WWT is famous for. The whole spectrum of, of life, from plant life through to insect life, through to bird life, through to larger mammals, you know, the whole lot, just starting with water. Um, uh, uh, and, and water is life, as you said right at the beginning. I guess my final question then, really, is if you were to just return to a city or an, an urban setting and you sort of dream up this picture it's high-rise buildings and it's tarmac roads and it's concrete and yes there'll be trees and parks and maybe there's a river running through the city but but how can we make space for wetlands in that kind of a landscape so I think um, especially if you live in an urban area especially if you live in a flat or, or dense urban area then it's the green spaces that are so valuable I mean we all know I think we've all realized during Covid how vital these uh, green spaces are for our own well-being um, but here at WWT we're on a mission to restore wetlands as I said and we think that blue spaces or green blue spaces as they're sometimes called are even more valuable time spent in nature is always um you know, beneficial to our health. As I say, we've got a, a mission to restore 100,000 hectares of wetland and we think that is achievable and we've got to start somewhere. We've all got to take the first few steps. I actually looked around and realised, having worked here for 18 years, that I hadn't got a pond in my own garden <laughs> a few years ago. And uh, I went out and I actually bought a couple of cattle troughs and, uh, and put them in the garden. And they're right outside my bedroom window. And, of course, you know... Straight away, I've got more birds, I've got plants, they're, they're things of great beauty, and uh, I think everyone can do it at some scale or another, can't they?
Very much so. And um, how important it is to make sure that our wetlands and our watercourses stay healthy. Thank you ever so much for talking to me today, Simon. I've had a really inspiring afternoon. Um, I've learned a huge amount and I look forward to coming back and seeing you again soon. (laughs) Thank you very much. Likewise. So there you are, Chris. What do you think of that then? Yeah, it was amazing, wasn't it? What an interesting conversation you had there. I mean, what he said was, water is life. Never a truer word is spoken. You've got to agree with that, surely? You know, I remember last year, we had a really hot period. and I cut through my local park on the way to go for a swim. And it just, you know what grass does, you know, it just goes dormant and it goes yellow. And I remember after about three weeks, there was really heavy rain and literally in two days, it just went really deep green. And you just thought, power of water really does bring everything to life, doesn't it? And if you go oh, to yes. you've got rainforests and you swear that you get these incredible rains, just leaves are the metre by a metre because it gets all that moisture and humidity. Yeah, definitely. I suppose you know, it's all very well at, at somewhere like Slimbridge, which is a great big wetland, or you know, perhaps somebody's got a big garden or lives next to a river or whatever. We, we often talk about putting a pond in. There you are in your flat. What would you do on your balcony if you wanted to put water on your balcony? I prefer a bog garden, to be honest, in a pot, or sometimes we do troughs on legs. That's quite common for a bog garden or a small pond. I think it's more easy to handle. Smaller areas of water can get really souped up, algaed up quite easily when the sun comes out. There's no reason why you can't have a decent little wildlife garden based around water. So I would get a large pot or a large trough. I would uh, put some a little bit of sand in the bottom, then I'd line it, a bit like I would a bog garden like I've described before. Um, so you can use a butyl liner, or maybe even if you want to be frugal, if you've got, you know, when you get you buy something quite big, like a TV or whatever, and you just get this huge piece of thick plastic it comes in. Yes. Always, yeah, you know, you always, I mean, they wrap everything in plastic now. You can also also use that, as long as it's thick enough, you can line the pot pump. The thing is to punch some holes in it, but not too many, and that means the water will move through the pot but slowly, you want it to move slowly. I would then get like a nice mix of loam, sort of garden soil and some peat-free multi-purpose compost and mix those two together and fill that pot up. And then really the touch is it doesn't have to be ugly, you know. I think most people think, well, it doesn't sound very, you know, aesthetic. Yes. Plastic and pull soil and <laughs> yeah, get some um, nice stones, some rocks. And, you know, and maybe some ferns, maybe a marsh marigold or something like that and plant it up and make it look aesthetic. And so the wildlife, et cetera, will get in and get under the rocks, the earwigs will find somewhere, et cetera, and you've got kind of a little wildlife area. On top of that, you could do a couple of other little things. I'm going to pay homage to Dave Goulson here because in his book, The Jungle Gardener, which is an amazing read, and he actually speaks about it on our podcast, I think. If you yes, want. he did, didn't he? Yeah, brilliant he's, interview. It's incredible. I love the man's passion as well. Go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. But I'm going to put in a, a hoverfly lagoon, which sounds very, very exotic. That sounds very yeah. exotic. <laughs> exactly. We're going to give those hoverflies a real treat. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love the idea of hoverfly and sunglasses. And, uh, yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what it is, is not, not some hoverfly, not all, but quite a few actually, they pupate in water. So what you can do is you can get a, 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 a container, only a small one, um, you know, a large mug, coffee mug or something. And then you can put in the bottom of that old sort of leaves and bits of debris, sort of organic matter really. And then you put three or four pieces of bamboo that rise out of the cup or the container. And what happens is that the, the hoverfly will lay, it, um, lay its, um, its young in there and they'll live on the bottom, feed on the organic matter, and then they'll climb up the bamboo and fly away when they're ready. So um, I like this idea because that's a sort of instant habitat. 
I mean, you know, I have heard that um, you, leaving bamboo canes um, for bees in the winter is not always a good idea because the bamboo canes can collapse. But in the in a hoverfly situation, you you would be putting them upright, so you're not yes. laying them down. You're putting them upright, and and you're finding a, a container that's going to go within your bog garden. But that's extraordinary to have this kind of whole feature that's dedicated to the hoverfly. Yeah. I love that. Well, you'd think a hoverfly larvae are a massive eater of aphids, so they're a good idea to have them around because they are the organic gardener's friend all the way along. So yes. the encourage them the better. Um, so you've kind of got your bog garden with the rocks and a couple of plants. You've got your hoverfly lagoon. The last thing I'd add is a, what I call a rot hole. Dave Gorson also mentions these, by the way, but uh, we've been using them in – I've seen them used at botanic gardens and stuff. And all that is is an old piece of wood with a, with a concave where maybe a, a big bough has snapped off or a branch has snapped off, and you get that concave so it can fill up with water, become nice and rotten, and it just is a source of hiding and food for all those. Or earwigs will love that sort of area. Wood lice would probably like it as well. So I place that in the container, and you've got those three elements, and that will bring in the wildlife. That just sounds so easy. Um, and I love this idea of kind of like a, you know, even like these mini puddles within the within the bog garden. Uh, that's really exciting. And, and also the fact that you can do it in actually a really, really small container. And I know what you're saying. I think you you were saying about if you do a small container pond, it's it's great in theory, but in practice it, it can get all silted up with uh, yeah. with blanket weed and you know algae is the main thing when the sun comes yes. on or heat up. And if you're using water from the taps, which you probably might have to if you get dry periods, so it's got nitrates in it and it just inc- it can get soupy. That's the proper way to describe it, I think. Whereas this bog garden, it's just the the water's kind of seeping through. You're letting the rainwater do the job for you, so you're not going to be filling it up because it's not like a pond you haven't got to fill it up you've got to let it moisten and 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 get wet of its own accord it's, it's very frugal isn't it really you're, yeah. you're, what you're really doing is maybe buying a little bit of peat free compost and maybe the pot you can make your own pot maybe you can make, maybe make it out of wood or so you are looking at very little expenditure and you're doing your little bit for biodiversity in your balcony area very much so and and one more um question I'm, i've got for you is when you get a real downpour, uh, you know, one of those kind of rainstorms that we, we're getting more and more these days, but you, you think, oh, my goodness, everything's just going to get beaten down and the, the garden's going to be flooded. What, what would you recommend um, in those scenarios? Yeah, well, it's obviously we are having these, you know, like I remember when I came back from abroad just before Christmas, we had that period where it just rained and rained and it was really mm-hmm. high winds and it's quite... Things were soaking wet. You couldn't get on the yeah. alarm. soaking. Well, I think there's a few things we can do, and I think this is a, a message maybe, you know, the horticulture needs to get out there more. And I saw a few today when I was walking. Um, it's stop paving over our front gardens for a start because yeah. where's the water going? You know, people moan that all the drains overflow. Well, you know, put a little plant border in the side of your – you can still have park your car there. Just have an open bit either side and put plants in it and let that water drain away. So those kind of things, soakaways. You see in cities now the rain gardens, which are actually what they're designed to do is to remove the water from the seam as quickly as possible. So you actually see quite arid plants in them because the whole idea is as the rain comes and it drains off into a sump straight away. So that's another good idea in urban areas. In your own garden, you might – the lowest point, you can maybe dig a square metre hole, square a metre deep, fill it with clinker and brick and that will act as a soak away and try and drain it. But we know the biggest one is to get that soil healthy, get the compost on it, get it broken down, get it lovely and friable, put plants in it because the roots will break it up, make it drainable. So good soil really is our key, I think. 
Yeah, and couldn't be more appropriate really for us as organic gardeners to be using that compost and getting the soil ready for whatever nature throws at it. Yes, (laughs) because we don't know what's coming down the line really, do we? No, we really don't. Um, And actually, I think that's a really good note to ask Anton to join us because we're going to spend a bit of time answering some questions now. Now Anton's joined us, ready for the post bag. Got some great questions this month. Hi, Anton. Hello. In an effort to reduce digging, I've covered the vegetable plot with cardboard, weighted down with about two inches depth of quite well rotted wood chip. Some of the wood chip was you. Can I sow seeds or set out plants directly into the mulch, or will there be some kind of deficiency as a result of the wood chip mulch containing some? unrated material you know so there's a lot of nervousness around this isn't there with wood chip um you're not quite sure what's in it and how to use it so anton how do you allay some fears around this so with wood chip generally you want to wait till it has composted pretty well if you are going to be incorporating it into the soil and sowing seeds into it because it, it really can soak up some of the nitrogen as it's still being broken down that the bugs basically as they're breaking down the wood will need nitrogen for that process it's okay to use unrotted wood chip as a mulch if you're not going to actually stir it into the soil that's not such a problem so i'm slightly nervous about what they've done here just because they're actually sowing seeds straight into it i think they probably with hindsight should have let it rot down a little bit more it might be a problem more in the first year it will probably be less of a problem later on but all is not lost they probably just need to top up the nitrogen levels a bit in in that soil because obviously they've got a bed now and they want to use it um so they probably want to add something that releases nitrogen fairly quickly like comfrey pellets or alfalfa pellets you might even need to liquid feed the plants if they're starting to struggle that's not something you'd normally want to do in a veg bed but on that occasion you might need to do that yeah okay that's really interesting so the the wood when it's new um it's just too young we we always talk about let things rot down everything's got to be well rotted everything's got to really start fermenting and then it's going to really do some good but i am quite interested that if you've got a flower bed perhaps that you're not really going to touch and you can just lay it over as a mulch that's fine but actually trying to garden with it you know yeah. with it in place it is a problem chris have you got any observations around this yeah i tend to agree with anton I, I would i would be patient personally i would want it more rotted particularly if you're planting young plant seed or or, or even plug young plants i would find a nice hard spot on the allotment i could think of a place on my own allotment i would stack it on there i'd probably turn it a few times through the course of the summer and i'd get it to break down keep moisture in it as well try and accelerate that process and look to use it the following year i expect or as a mulch in the in the late winter i'll probably maybe if i've got a compost spare i might mix in with that as well to help degrade it even more um, but yeah so if you've got something like you use a very hard wood it won't break down quickly so you are kind of tempting fate a little bit for, for a nitrogen deficiency the other thing is if there's following year and you can use it maybe use a sieve if you're sowing seeds into it to make it finer but i'd give it a bit of time personally yeah okay so no quick fix here but you know interesting nonetheless and if, if you've got a stash of wood chip it's good stuff there's no doubt about that it just has to be well rotted yeah okay all right now our second question is not for the (laughs) faint-hearted 
We've had uh, an increase in inquiries here on how to manage rats in your garden. And it's fact, it's something we've had a bit of bother with ourselves here at Wrighton. I mean, it, it seems to be a problem that you're hearing of more and more, actually. Why do we think it's such an issue at the moment, Anton? So there's a number of reasons. We think it's partly to do with mild, wet winters. So yeah. they're breeding all the year round, whereas winter used to be a period which would knock them back a bit. And also we think perhaps because of flooding of habitats as well, it might be driving them out and into more sort of urban environments as well. I think it's those two things really that are causing it. Right, so major issue. I mean, a lot of people say if you keep chickens, then you're going to have rats in your garden. Some people even go as far to say, if you've got a compost heap, you're going to have rats in your garden. Would you go that far, Anton? So, yeah, that's something we get asked quite a lot. And it's sometimes a bit of a deterrent to people. They think that if they have a compost bin, it's going to encourage rats. And a well-managed compost heap shouldn't really attract rats. So there's a number of things you can do with your compost to um, reduce the chances of that happening. No, number one is don't put cooked food on your compost heap, if, especially if you've got an open bin, because the rats will just get in and, and feed on that. Mm. It's particularly the cooked food that attracts them. Secondly, if you can site your compost heap in a place that you use quite often, people tend to tuck compost heaps away in a corner of the garden somewhere. And at the edges of garden tends to be the rats have their runs. Ah, and so, yes. And so having your compost heap somewhere where it gets disturbed a lot rats don't tend to like people and turn your compost heap quite often as well that will disturb any rats which are trying to make any sort of nest in there um so yeah those those things really um quite interested in the cooked food thing i mean i think it's an obvious point sometimes but on the other hand you know we we do talk a lot about recycling food waste as, as well as we can i mean i've, I've got a bakashi bin um uh, in my kitchen so i scatter that clever bran on top of the the food waste and it, it it pickles it you have to leave it a couple of weeks but it sort of pickles the food within the within the bin and that is rat proof that is they're not interested in that it stinks it, they don't want it so that in that context you can put cooked food i think but uh, i tend to put my other sort of tasty veg scraps and things like that i tend to put them straight into a sealed wormery so i suppose it's all about what you put where um, but but on the other hand, we do like to use kitchen waste. We do like to make sure it, it gets composted. So so let's just cross check then. What kind of kitchen waste is okay to put into a compost bin? It's okay to put sort of veg peelings and things like that. It's mainly the cooked food that's right. a problem. And okay. so I wouldn't put things like bread, dairy products. I wouldn't put meat in there. But th things like. Apple cores, banana skins, tea bags should be fine to put into your compost bins. And, and like you say, the, the cooked food waste can be processed through a bakashi bin and it has a sort of pickled smell that the rats don't like. You could also get yourself a rat-proof compost bin for composting food waste as well. So there's one that's called the Green Joanna that's got a solid mesh base that will keep the rats out. I must say... Rats can possibly chew through that base if they're really determined, but it will certainly put them off. Well, Chris is our resident Londoner. <laughs> You're never very far from a rat, are no, you? No, six metres, I reckon, yeah. <laughs> pop round for tea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your experience? Pie Piper, mate, that's what we need. We need the Pie Piper. <laughs> yeah, I think it has to be preventative, really. I mean, obviously, there's a lot. I see them in my local park. There's quite a lot of them there. 
Um, anywhere that's kind of neglected and rubbish is lying around is what's really in an urban environment. That's will bring them in so quickly. Yeah. So on the allotment, I'm very careful. I've used hygiene. I won't leave you know rotting vegetables or anything. They they might um, might attract them. Um, half a sandwich if I've been eating a sandwich, I won't do that as well. Obviously, the things Anton mentioned, I don't put dairy or meat or fish or bread onto the compost heap. And if you do, they might come for cereals and sweet corn. I'm told, so they might. If you maybe if I thought they were in the area, I might um, avoid growing those things that they might find delicious but on the whole i don't have a problem with rats we haven't got a problem with rats on the allotment but we're all quite hygienic we take care i think yeah yeah well that's the thing isn't it so preventative measures seems to be the way forward okay i'm currently planning my garden for this year but i'm trying to do it on a very tight budget can you recommend the best plants to invest in particularly ones i can propagate year after year so thinking about gardening on a budget then anton what can we do for free first of all yeah, that's always important. People always think you have to spend money on gardening, but there's plenty of things you can do without putting your hand in your pocket. So you can always save seeds out of things. So if you've been growing, I mean, tomatoes, one of the easiest things, just just only need a few tomatoes really to be able to get quite a lot of seed for next year. So just plan ahead, really. When you're harvesting your tomatoes, just keep a few aside and also same things like peas as well really easy to keep a few aside and then look around your garden and see whether there's sort of old flower heads and things like that so sort of things like calendulas is good one sunflowers um yeah loads of things basically will have seed heads on them just go around and collect some with some envelopes and you'll find all sorts of things then there's lots of things like there's seed swaps so you can look those up a lot of those are on most of the sort of seed swaps are on Garden Organics website, local Facebook groups yeah. as well. I mean, yeah. certainly my village has got people saying, oh, I've got loads of spare tomato plants. Even people are just leaving them on their drive for you to take away. So just keep your eyes open for free things. OK, brilliant. Well, we do in- encourage seed swapping a lot at Garden Organic. You're right. And it is worth a visit to our website to see if there's anyone mentioned near you. But you, you will also find all sorts of brilliant things online. And, and I know myself. I can't bear things that I might have raised going to waste. So make friends. I think that's one of the important things, best best way to do it, isn't it? Find some gardening buddies and and go from there. Chris, what about you? Do you, at this time of year, have any nifty propagating techniques to get some free plants? Well, it's the perfect time of year for for dividing plants, herbaceous perennials, and they're the plants that die back in the autumn use the soil as a duvet and wait till the warmer weather comes back before shooting again so this is a great time of year to get those plants if they've overgrown or you want to thin them a bit get them out of the ground and divide them up so a decent basis root ball you can get eight nine ten plants out of it if you divide it up again you mentioned it there the giveaway factor gardeners are the most generous people yes. you'll ever meet we love giving plants to other people in fact some of my neighbors at the end of the summer when i was stuff off the lot they run away from me because i'm too generous i think because i'm trying to give them give them plants and bits <laughs> of plants so we are very that nature <laughs> we do have an expression if you want to keep a plant give it away because then if yours dies you can go and get it so division is a brilliant time of year so there's so many different plants the easiest method so I'd probably raise up say if it was a phlox or something like that and a base of phlox I'd lift it I'd probably get two forks back to back and because it's quite tough and pull them apart I'd get four or five plants pot them up and then I'd give them away to friends so it's a really easy free way to grow on it you'd have that plant flowering next summer with the butterflies visiting it as well. Yeah, lovely. And if you did decide to put 20 quid in your back pocket and go down to your local garden centre or perhaps a nearby nursery, what would you spend that money on, Anton? I personally would 
go for a fruit bush because it just gives it's going to give you a lot of enjoyment and most sort of soft fruit is really expensive in the shops and they're pretty easy to grow as well don't take too much maintenance and they're very easy to propagate as well so you can give ones away to other people i, I particularly go for a, a nice gooseberry they're my favorite some of the really nice deep purple ones um i can't think things like um, black velvet's got a really nice sort of rich taste to it and you don't find those in the shops yeah, absolutely. So if you're going to invest, you might as well buy something that you can't easily get hold of. What about you, Chris? Anyone who knows me as I'm a lover of hardy annuals. So plants that all over winter as seed, but I grow through the spring and the summer. And I think yeah, well, some flowers are goodishas, sweet peas, um, nasturtiums. And you get a real range of them. You can buy a packet of seeds for a couple of quid, quid 50, sow them in the ground. And then what tends to happen is they become very free. They're, I call them Gertrude Jekyll plants because mm. Gertrude Jekyll said all plants are f- uh, welcome in my garden and when they start to set seed. So I, I put them on the allotment as, as sort of pollinator belts along the sides of my veg and they just return basically. And also to top that up, I will graze them in the uh, in the autumn, put them in Tupperware, paper envelopes into Tupperware and then I, what I'll do is soon, because they like a bit of cold snap to germinate, I will start to sow them again. So really for 20 quid... You can get that to stretch a long, long, long way. That's a lot of flowers, isn't it? Yeah. That is a lot of flowers, absolutely. I think I would go for um, a really good quality seed compost, actually, with my 20 quid, because I am a devil for having far too many seeds and you know not always getting around to sowing them all. Um, and I think if I'd invested in a really decent, peat-free, organic seed compost, then that would inspire me to get down to the potting shed and and get those seeds sown so that's that's what i'm going to spend my money on (laughs) very wise right well i think that's about it for all our questions this time um we'll see you again next time thanks ever so much thanks so much for listening to this month's episode of the organic gardening podcast and thanks to simon rose from the wwt for taking the time to show me around slimbridge i think we're all going to start making mini bog gardens now Don't forget, we've got until the end of February until our Heritage Seed Library seed list closes for 2024. We've still got plenty of fabulous varieties in stock, which you can order at gardenorganic.org.uk forward slash shop forward slash seeds. If you aren't a member and growing unique vegetable varieties sounds interesting to you, you can join Garden Organic and the Heritage Seed Library from as little as a fiver a month. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. See you next time.